going to pick up talking about Persian Jerusalem. This is the period post-exile. Uh, Samaria obviously was destroyed. Israel was destroyed by the Assyrians. The Babylonians came in in 586, destroyed the temple, uh, had this massive exile of all the nobles, all the educated people uh, from Judah. And then in the meantime, while in Babylon, the Babylonians were overthrown by the Persians. Okay, so we're going to talk about Persian period uh, and the return to Jerusalem from Persian exile. So here's our historical context. Um, we're dealing basically what we call the second temple period. You'll hear, uh, I always refer to myself as a second temple archaeologist or a, uh, a, a person studying uh, Judaism at the second temple period or archaeology at that period. And what, what we mean by that is from 539 BCE, the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, the return from Babylonian exile, to 70 CE, okay, and 70 CE being the destruction of the second temple. So the Solomon was always the first temple, referred to as Solomon's temple, the first temple. Now they're going to rebuild the temple. It's not going to be, we don't really know what first Solomon's first temple looked like. We have a literary description, but we don't know. But we know that the second temple wasn't really that nice. It, wasn't, it, wasn't, it was said not to be as glorious as the first temple. Um, Herod the Great will remedy that, by the way. Herod the Great likes to build things. Um, so we have Cyrus is going to give an edict of return. And we'll talk about who these people are in a second. We're going to see the rebuilding of the second temple in 515. And then later on, a couple of lectures from now, we're going to see the expansion and the renovation of the temple by Herod the Great, which begins in about 20 BCE. And then um, the building of the temple platform around all that. And then, of course, the second temple period ends with the destruction of the temple in 70 CE at the hands of the Romans. So the Persian period is typically defined by 539 to 333 BC. What happens in 333? Fast forward. Who shows up? Alexander the Great. So the Persian period is 539 to 333 BCE. But the Second Temple period is the beginning of the Persian period, but it expands through the Hellenistic period and the Roman period. And then the temple is destroyed in 70 CE. Questions? Got all this? So that's what we're going to be talking about today. And we will get through all the materials then. Got this? <coughs> all right. What are our sources for the Persian period? Remember, all of this, all of these lectures are online. You can download it. So you want to take supplemental notes on top of this or to the side of this. You guys know you should be able also, when you print out your PDFs, you should be able to print them out with slides on one side and white paper on the other so you can take notes to the side. You can print three slides per page and then just take notes like that if you want. Um, what biblical literature do we have? We're dealing with the book of Chronicles. Chronicles, as I said, is a repeat of the books of Samuels and the books of Kings, uh, with the exception that Chronicles cleans things up. There's lots of problems in the text of Samuel and in the text of Kings, not just textual problems, but theological or potential theological problems. We talked about how one of the ways uh, that uh, the authors of the Bible dealt with this cognitive dissonance is by contextualizing and or adding conditions on certain things or retelling the story in a certain way that cleans it up a little bit. Um, we get a lot of Chronicles. So Chronicles is a later book. The minor prophet books of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are also uh, <coughs> prophetic books that are, are dealing with this period. And then, of course, uh, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah uh, are books that talk about the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple. One of the indicators, so here's a trivia question, one of the indicators that you're dealing with the Persian period is the rise of Aramaic. Remember, the Assyrians were the ones who switched from Akkadian to Aramaic for, their, um, for a lot of their uh, governmental uh, things, for a lot of their, their uh, writing and, and communications. And they adopted Aramaic because it was an easier administrative <coughs> language. Um, and so here's your trivia question. What language besides Hebrew is the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, Christian Old Testament, written in? Not only Hebrew, but it's also written in Aramaic. Specifically, there are portions written in Aramaic uh, in uh, Ezra 4 uh, and through Ezra 6, and then also some in, in Ezra chapter 7. So Aramaic is very similar to Hebrew. I, I actually think it's prettier. No offense to those you know. I, for me, it's easier. It's, it's, uh, it's, I think it's a little easier language to use. 
And then, of course, Aramaic and Hebrew um, come from a similar source, a similar uh, proto-language. Um, and then the book of Nehemiah. There's also Aramaic in Daniel. The book of Daniel, chapters 2 through chapter 7, are all written in Aramaic, which is an indicator that Daniel was written much later. Uh, and you also get uh, a phrase in Genesis, I think a phrase in Jeremiah, but just a phrase. But you get entire chunks of the Hebrew Bible written in Aramaic. And as for, yeah? It is. The answer to the question is Aramaic is spoken today. It's called Neo-Aramaic. And you can take an Aramaic class, guess where? It's one of the few universities on the planet that offer Neo-Aramaic. Here, there's a professor named Jonas Sabar over in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures. And he's from one of the three tribes that still speak Neo-Aramaic. So you can actually, so my Aramaic teacher here at UCLA actually speaks Aramaic, which is difficult when he just starts talking to you in Aramaic. You're supposed to answer him. It's like learning French, right? Conversationally. It's like, no, I just, I just need to read these. But he wants to teach us Aramaic. Yes. So it's, but very, it's, it's, it's almost gone. But he's trying to, he's on this, uh, this uh, fight to preserve it. Great question. And then, of course, second Isaiah. Many of you may not know the book of Isaiah, the prophet. There's this prophet named Isaiah. Uh, it's actually at least three different people writing this book. It all gets lumped under the name Isaiah. But this is one of the phenomena that we see in the Hebrew Bible, but also in the New Testament. Um, and that is people claiming to be someone, and so they write under someone else's name. Okay? So um, this is called pseudepigrapha, pseudepigrapha, which literally means false writing. Uh, not false in that it's not true, or it's not that it's true or untrue, but it, it's a false author. Here's what happens. Uh, somebody is considered to have authority, right? <coughs> so Moses was said to have authority, or Abraham was said to have authority, or David, or Jesus, or something like that, or Peter in the New Testament. Uh, and people will want to say something, but they won't say it in the name of Bob, right? So I say, the letter of Bob, well, I, Bob, you know, the, uh, the uh, disciple of whatever God. Right? So, and you will say, well, who's Bob? But if I say, I, Moses, all of a sudden, ooh, right? So a lot of literature will begin to pop up in this period, claiming to be written by people who've been dead for thousands of years. And most of this was did not make it into the Hebrew Bible. You've got letters written in Greek claiming to be written by the patriarchs of Israel. Right? So that obviously weren't, there was no Greek language way back then, so they obviously weren't written. But there were claims to be written by these people. Okay? But some of them did make it in. And sometimes you wrote in the name of your uh, of your mentor, right? So if I studied under the original prophet Isaiah, and my name was Bob, I wouldn't say, you know, and continuing in this tradition, I Bob. No, I just say, and Isaiah said the following, or I claimed to be Isaiah. I would write in his name, and this was a very uh, uh, acceptable practice. You write in the name of. Anyways, all that is to say, the book of Isaiah is actually three different books, if not four different books. Otherwise, Isaiah lived to be 200 or 300 years old. Okay. Um, the themes of the books change over time. One's pre-exilic, or one's exilic, and then one's post-exilic. Okay. So the book of 2nd Isaiah, basically chapters 40 through 66, are said to be uh, this, this period here. Some will say 3rd Isaiah, um, but that's a whole other class. Anyways. Um, and then you have non-biblical texts dealing directly with Jerusalem for this period, which we'll look at in just a second. We'll look at some of these in just a second. And then, of course, we'll look at some of the archaeological evidence. So this is kind of what we've got. Now, there's not a ton of writing. There's not a ton of non-biblical literary evidence. There's some, but not a ton coming out of this period. And we'll discuss why. Everybody have this? Questions? Okay. One of the prophecies that we see uh, that becomes prominent in this period is a book by a prophet named Ezekiel. Now, I've mentioned previously that Ezekiel is kind of nutty, right? And I say that with respect, but the closest thing I can find to the book of Ezekiel is going down the Third Street Promenade and listening to these guys in the corners act out these things, and they're just speaking, and they're saying pretty <coughs> random things. They're, they're overblown, and a lot of times we laugh at them, and, and trust me, Ezekiel was laughed at as well. I mean, he says some pretty, and we'll look at a couple of them, but if you really want to see some, some vivid stuff, um, go, read, go read Ezekiel. But um, 
he's a prophet that's exiled to Babylon, 597. And he has this vision. The book of Ezekiel opens up with a vision of a mobile God. Now think about this. What did the Israelites do way back in the day? They used to have this thing called the Ark of the Covenant, and it represented God wherever this thing. It was a, you know, it was a, a thing that you marched into battle with, with war. All the other different, when you went to war, all the other different peoples had some kind of God or idol that they marched into war with. It was supposed to protect them. The Israelites were no exception. Um, and he was mobile. And then what? They conquered Jerusalem, and they built a temple, and they put the Ark of the Covenant in the temple, and then we never hear about the Ark of the Covenant again. Why? Because they're not a mobile people anymore. They're a stationary people, a stationary temple, just like all the other peoples, right? So they got a temple, and the temple kind of takes over this veneration that was a, used to be uh, with the Ark of the Covenant. And we never hear about the Ark again. We've talked about that. Now we have this issue where the, people, the temple's destroyed, the people are in exile. What happened to God? And we talked about last time, one of the ways that the Bible deals with this is to go back and conditionalize the promise to David. So instead of saying, I will be, you know, you are a king of David, the son of David will sit on the throne forever, you begin to see edits in there. The son of David will sit on the throne forever if you obey my commandments. Or what? What do we talk about? What kind of theology do we talk about with the temple? Main theology, right? So no longer does God live in the temple because if the temple's destroyed now, Either God wasn't very strong or God is dead or something. So what they do is they say, well, that was just a place where God's name was worshipped. And it's called name theology. And a lot of you put that on your questions on the test and you did a good job. Um, so but what happened to God? Okay, so that's where his name is. Where did God go? Well, the idea is that God lives up in heaven somewhere. And now what happens? If you're a people who's supposed to be living in this one city, you believe you're supposed to be living in a city, but you're living in another city, where did God go? to get mobile again, right? God has to be living up in the sky. He can't still be living in Jerusalem. He got destroyed. So what we begin to see is this idea of a Merkava. This, this is kind of the word. And you hear a lot of this in uh, Kabbalist. Uh, uh, it's a Jewish mystical movement. Kabbalah, Kabbalah. Um, Madonna. You hear about it. You know what Madonna is in Kabbalist. But the idea is that it's a mystical version of Judaism. They, they, Words don't really mean just what the words say. They count as numbers, and you can do all this. It's a form of mystical religion. Um, but it, it likes to play on this idea of America Bob. This vision that Ezekiel sees that God is portable. He has this fantastic vision to look at in a second. Then he has this journey to Jerusalem in the vision. And then at the end of uh, Ezekiel's uh, prophecy, um, he, he has this vision of a new temple, and it's a utopian temple. And in, in over eight chapters, he actually sets out the dimensions of this new temple. Okay, so we're not, we don't have time to read it, but Ezekiel has this vision of this new temple, this new Jerusalem, right? So you're actually going to go through and measure it out, and then the divine presence actually returns. Well, if he returns, where did he go?
or this thing that, that's kind of akin to a biblical cherub? It, it, is it describing something like that? Okay, it's one of these, but now it has four heads, right? And extra wings. So it's it's an imaginary, it's this, it's this um, very imaginative vision that he has. Why is he having a vision? Why would the Bible put this vision in there? Because he's trying to convey the idea of portability. Remember? The Ark of the Covenant had what? Poles. The Ark of the Covenant used to be carried around. It was portable. It wasn't a stationary thing like a temple. It was portable. Okay? So, Ezekiel is essentially taking this idea of the Ark, that it disappears, and pimping it up a little bit. You've seen Pimp My Ride, the show Pimp My Ride. Okay, so Ezekiel's going to pimp the Ark a little bit. And what he's going to do is he's going to have this magnificent vision, right, of this new throne of God. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant was said to be the footstool or the presence of God in front of God. Ezekiel has, except on it, it has wheels. And it's carried around by these crazy-looking beasts. And he's having this really imaginative vision. And the idea is you know, a wheel within a wheel. They moved in any of the four directions without steering, or without veering as they moved. So what's Ezekiel trying to say? What's his vision trying to convey? Don't worry, Israel. God is portable once again. He didn't die. He wasn't destroyed. God's portable. And, you know, there are people who try to always draw this. And, of course, anytime you deal with a prophetic vision, everybody takes it and runs with it and comes up with all kinds of very um, imaginative things. A lot of places to go with. And so Ezekiel is a place that's kind of ripe for picking uh, with it when it comes to imaginative eschatology and afterlife. Just what I want you to know is Ezekiel's vision is trying to convey this idea that God is portable. God's not dead. God's portable. Just to recap, we talked about what happened to the ark. It was introduced in, in Exodus 25, those of you writing on the Ark of the Covenant. Introduced in Exodus 25. It was brought to Jerusalem by David in 2 Samuel 6. So it's still portable. Put into the temple by Solomon in 1 Kings 8. Right? And then it, it's missing. And we never hear about it again. Right? It just goes missing. It's not mentioned in any of the list, the very uh, specific list of items that were taken off during the exiles and during conquest. The Ark's never mentioned. And I've told you in the past, I think it's because it was already gone. And that I have a whole theory on that. It's, it's online. You can, you can watch it. Um, all we know is it's gone. And it doesn't return again until we see this mobile Ark version by Ezekiel. So the Ark of the Covenant comes back into play in the, in the form of this vision because they need it to. God needs to be portable again because they're off in exile. They're now a portable people again. So that's how the Bible rationalizes the destruction of the temple. One of the ways is using the vision of Ezekiel. Okay. Any questions? You have all this? Another second? Okay. Let's introduce King Cyrus, the Persian. Okay. Um, Politically or diplomatically speaking, the Persians were superior to both the Assyrians and the Babylonians when it comes to foreign affairs, I would argue, foreign affairs or diplomacy, if I can say that. Remember, the Assyrians would not only kill you, but would kill you in such a way that would scare everyone else and act as a deterrent. Right? Now, yeah, they try to get you to surrender, but when you didn't surrender, they, they'd kill you. And the Babylonians were that and more of it, right? But what the Persians did is they came to power and they tried to act a little bit more diplomatically. Not like we do modern times, but more akin to what we do in modern times, right? Uh, in early colonial movements, which were up until, I would say, even not even 100 years ago, uh, what you would do is you would, what did, what's, what did the British Empire do? They'd go and they'd take over a place. If they liked the tea in India, they'd go to India and colonize the place. And now they'd send themselves tea. Or they come to the U.S. and colonize the place, and you know they have 13 colonies, right? They go all over the place and, and they claim it for the British crown. How does the United States colonize things today? This is a little dicey politically, I know, but how could one? Let's put it this way: How might one, or how might you have heard, uh, that the U.S. colonizes things today? We do colonialism differently. What do we do? Yeah. Okay, so we control free markets, capitalism, all these conspiracy theories. But what else do we really do? We go there and attack 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, the answer is we go in, we attack, then we rebuild it, and then we give it back to them, right? But in, in taking it away from someone and giving it back to the people, in liberating people, what are we doing? We make sure that we put in power somebody that does what we like, um, and they, until they get tired of occupation, right, they try to make their, show their appreciation, they like us better than the last guy, right? If you discount all the insurgencies and the problems that come with that. The idea is that instead of just taking a country for yourself, we conquer it, we liberate it, and we give it back, but the people in place will do what we want them to do. They'll be more favorable to us. And then you do that a lot. You do that in Afghanistan, you do that in Pakistan, you do that. This is kind of what I would argue is the new colonization. Okay. That's similar to what, that's more along the lines of what the Persians are doing. Okay. One of the things we'll look at in just a second is this cylinder here. They call it the Cyrus Cylinder. And it's a clay cuneiform cylinder announcing a general return of exiles to homelands. What's one of the easiest ways to get people to like you? Right? What, what do politicians do in this country every time they want you to, to vote for them? What? They make promises specifically what? Read my lips, no new taxes, or I will cut your taxes. And, okay, we can't really afford a tax cut, but I'm going to cut them. I would like a check. Okay, sure, I'll vote for you. And then you know, we have a huge deficits. The problem is you do things that the people will like, especially appealing to oppressed people. It's called populist, right? So what, what Cyrus did is he took all of the peoples who were oppressed by the previous administrations, okay? And he would say, you know what? You guys were exiled here against your will. I'd like you to go home. How about if I give you some money and you get all your friends and get out, I mean, Go back home. So you could argue that what they're doing is they're re-exiling the Judeans who are in now in exile in Persia and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. They're re-exiling. But they're doing it in such a way that they feel, the people, the exiles feel that they're being something being done nice to them. Right? What's the old proverb about diplomacy? Diplomacy is letting someone else have your way. Diplomacy is letting someone else have your way. So if you don't want a bunch of Judeans in what is now this going to be this Persian Empire, you can either re-exile them to get your stuff and get out of here, go back to wherever you came from, or what you can do is say, hey, here's some money. We know that you were brought here against your will. How'd you like to go home? Here's some money. Go rebuild your temple. Worship your God. As long as you pay your taxes and don't revolt against us. How would the, how would the Judeans view this? Well, let's see how they do that. So he's going to foster an image of as a liberator. You get this thing in Zechariah, up, up, flee to the land of the north, escape to Zion, the Jew that, uh, that, um, you that live with God Rebel. You started to get these ideas of going home. But they're done in such a way that's very diplomatic. Okay? Um, when we talked about the Cyrus Cylinder that's written in Akkadian script. Right, let's keep going here. How did the Judeans respond to this? Okay. Well, Cyrus, a Persian king, he's not Jewish, right? The Persian king opposed and conquered the Babylonian Empire is actually called a deliverer. Specifically, he's called a messiah. And this, to me, is fascinating. Okay? So when you read Isaiah 44, I am the Lord who made all things, who says of Cyrus, what? He is my shepherd, he shall carry out all my plans. And then later on, in Isaiah 45, thus says the Lord to his anointed one, the word here, Mashiach. Where do we know that word? <coughs> Messiah. The Hebrew Bible actually calls the Persian king a Messiah. Why? Because he's been anointed, obviously, to do the will of God. Why? Because in the Judean mindset, anybody who does something nice to the Jews and returns them back home must be working on behalf of God. So now you've got Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, calling a Persian king a prophet. I mean, pardon me, a Messiah. To Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subjugate the nation before him. I am the Lord. There is no other except for me. There is no God. I will keep you, though you do not know me. Now, this is an interesting phrase. I put it in yellow because, as we're going to see, Cyrus certainly doesn't think he's working for the Hebrew God. 
Cyrus has a very specific diplomatic task in mind. He wants to take these foreign exiles and send them back home. But he wants to do so in such a way that they like him, that they see him as a liberator and not as someone re-exiling them. Okay? But I just find it fascinating, especially people who are interested in Messianism, to see that you've actually got a Persian king called Messiah. Remember, lots of people are called Messiahs, but here you have a foreign king called Messiah in the Hebrew text. The, they usually skip this in Sunday school. They don't, they don't always mention this. And it's just another example of how the biblical author come down. <laughs> how the biblical author must rationalize history, even if it involves giving credit to a foreign, foreign king as God's deliverer. <clears throat> so what do you do? What do you do? Now you've got not a son of David, but a foreign king being called Messiah by Isaiah. Again, this is this usually doesn't come up. It's very problematic, right? So it doesn't come up in Sunday school very often. Got this? <clears throat> Questions? Alright. Oops. Wrong order. How do I draw? Now, let's see what the difference is between what the Bible says, how Ezra, the Hebrew Bible, interprets this, and how the Cyrus cylinder said it. Remember, the Isaiah just called the Persian King Cyrus uh, uh, a Messiah, right? Thus said King Cyrus of Persia. So the Bible is giving this declaration, right? The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judea. Any, uh, any one of his people among you, may God be with him and let him go to Jerusalem in Judea and build the temple. That's a very diplomatic way of saying, hey, all you foreigners, get out of here. What he's saying is, hey, you weren't here, you weren't here on your own. Let me give you some money. Go back and build your temple. You, you can go home now. You're free. But what he really wants is then to get out. Okay? That's what the Bible says. Now, let's see what let's see what the Cyrus cylinder says. Marduk, the great lord of Babylon, protector of his people, beheld with pleasure the good deeds of Cyrus and ordered him to march against the city of Babylon. He made him set out the, the road to Babylon going at his side like a real friend. So God, Marduk, is the friend of Cyrus. Right? Without any battle, he made him enter the town of Babylon. So Cyrus gives credit to Mark, Marduk. The Bible says, no, 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 no. See, it's, it's, it's God. It's, it's Hebrew God. It's our God. He's made him the Messiah, and he sent us home. And then the question is, you know, which account do you buy? Now, obviously, the Cyrus cylinder is no more objective than the Hebrew Bible. So you can't say, well, the Bible's the objective way, and this is just him telling a lie. Just like you can't say, well, this is obviously objective in history, and, and this is, right? It's two different subjective accounts. This guy conquered the Babylonians and sent the Jews home. That's what we know. This guy credits Marduk. These guys credit God, and the Hebrew God, Yahweh. Yeah? Um, Marduk is a god of Babylon, right? So Cyrus yeah. is Persia. Why did he... For the same reason that, uh, uh, what do we know? What's another name for Zeus? Jupiter, right? What's another name for you know, all these guys? As you'll see in Eliade, sacred places tend to transcend. And as we move from Judaism to Christianity, all of the holy places that were holy in Judaism are going to become holy in Christianity. And guess what? Once we get to Islam, all of the holy places that were holy to those are going to be holy to Islam as well. Just like gods. Gods tend to transcend religions. So when the Jews, when the, when the people that call themselves the Israelites and the Judeans came to Canaan, or were in Canaan, depending on, on what uh, evidence you, you accept, um, all of a sudden they had this God, you know, we had uh, uh, Melchizedek was blessing them by El Elyon, God of the God of God Most High, right? And then you had Baal and El and Yom and all of a sudden, you've got one God whose name in Hebrew is Elohim, which technically means gods, but they saw him since they're monotheistic as one God. And then you get the name Yahweh revealed, and that's their God. And then the Christians accept which God? The same God, right? Now, they got Jesus in there somewhere, and he's God, and the Holy Spirit. And then what? Then the Islam comes along and does what? 
well, it's the same God, but they call him Allah, right? And he's got a prophet, and Jesus was also a prophet. The same God transcends three religions. And the same thing is true back here. Marduk was the God of that area, so when the Persians come in, they just they just take that God, worship him, thank you for letting us conquer Babylon, God Marduk, and on they go. So God's transcend religions just like holy places do. Same is true for holidays, right? Half of the Christian holidays, probably more than half of the Christian holidays, were actually what? Jewish holidays or pagan holidays. What's the quickest way to get rid of a pagan holiday? Make it one of your own holidays. Celebrate Saint so-and-so on this same day, and now all of a sudden everybody's worshiping or, or celebrating Saint whatever on a day that they used to celebrate the eclipse or some solstice or something. Yeah, I mean, uh, Zoroastrianism, the question is the Persian Empire was Zoroastrian. Yeah, that was their, that was their big, they, they worshipped, uh, the other name for the Persians is the Achaemenids, the Achaemenids, um, and they worshipped Ahura Mazda, not, not this, but Ahura Mazda was the name of their god, uh, and then Zoroastrianism. And I will, I will argue this as well, a lot of what we know today as biblical Judaism, is, is due to the Greek influence, yes, granted, but it's also due to Persian influence. A lot of what we have, specifically ideas of heaven and hell, or paradise, Kadesh, this idea of a, of a paradise you go to when you die, it is nowhere in the Hebrew Bible until you get down to the Persian period. Same with uh, uh, this idea of hell. You don't have an idea of hell in the Hebrew Bible, in the Christian Old Testament. You have this place called Shell, S-H-E-O-L. You have to say it carefully. Um, Shell. You have to be see if the mic goes out while you're saying, yeah, when you die, you go to this Shell. It, it comes off funny. Spelled S-H-E-T-O-L, right? And what it is is the place you go when you die. It's the place where the place where God is not. When you die, you die in Judaism, at least in ancient Judaism, biblical Judaism. Now, that changes in the Persian period. In the Persian period, perhaps on Zoroastrian influence, perhaps on Hellenistic influence, Platonism and uh, Platonic, uh, uh, Plato and his, his idea of shapes, of shapes of them. I'm going to talk really loud now. Um, you get this idea of um, this place you go or your spirit separates from your body when you die. Okay? So this actually comes from this period. Prior to this, you don't have an idea of heaven or hell in Judaism. In fact, when we get to Christianity, we'll actually see that one of the great debates between Jews, specifically a group called the Pharisees and a group called the Sadducees, one of the big problems, one of the differences between these two groups is um, whether or not you believe in an afterlife. Right? The Sadducees don't believe in an afterlife. They don't believe in heaven or hell. The Pharisees do. So from where did this idea of heaven come from? Obviously, Jesus believed in, in an afterlife, so you would lump him with the Pharisees, although he fought with them as well. But the idea of heaven and hell, I, 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 don't, I didn't just say it was invented, although one could certainly argue that, but it certainly isn't around. I would say that it, it's grafted into Judaism during this period, specifically simply because we have no evidence of heaven or hell mentioned in any literature, uh, and obviously not in the archaeological record, prior to the Persian period. You get mentions of things like this in Job, and you, you know, even Satan, this idea of Hasatan, right, this accuser. It's not until this period. So yes, Zoroastrianism may play a bigger role than we think. Anybody looking to do a good doctorate in uh, Jewish origins, look into the Persian period. A lot of what we know today as Judaism comes from this period. Okay. Um, so again, you've got two different accounts, and it's up to you to decide which one you think is. I would argue that they're both subjective. Again, the object of the Hebrew Bible is to convince you of a certain point of view, just like Cyrus Cylinder was a piece of propaganda trying to convince you of a certain point of view. Right? People who are Jews or Christians are going to say, no, the Bible account's correct. And people who worship Marduk are going to say, anybody worship Marduk? Are going to say this, the Cyrus Cylinder's correct. It's two different accounts of the same event. 
Um, there are two returns. Just as there were three waves of exiles, there are two returns from exile, okay? Um, the leading figures are Cyrus, who we just talked about, Candaces II, who followed him, and Darius I, Darius I, the usurper, okay? Darius was not uh, the son of Candaces. He wasn't a descendant. He wasn't from that same line. So when he came to power, there were a lot of revolts. They didn't think he was a legitimate king. There were a lot of revolts. So it was very important for Darius I to try to win the favor of as many people as possible. Okay? We'll come back, keep that in mind. Remember that the Persians were master diplomats. They're trying to win as many people as possible, especially foreign people. Uh, Zechariah and Haggai are said to be prophets in the Hebrew Bible. Zerubbabel um, is, is a key figure there, as is Joshua, who's going to become the next high priest. Okay? The Jerusalem, this is a good date to have here. The Jerusalem temple is rebuilt between 520 and 515 BCE under Darius I. And if anyone has two AA batteries, I would appreciate it. I don't have any. It'll save me. It might be worth extra credit. Don't go running out the door. Okay. Um, so they're going to try to learn well, especially in the West. Why? Who are the Persians? When, when, um, when Darius the I becomes king of Persia, there's a new threat coming from the West. And they're called? No. The Greeks. Right? The 300 movie and all that stuff. Okay? Um, so he's going to try to put as many loyal people to him in the West as he possibly can, which could be another political reason for sending the Jews back home. Not only do you get to go home, but now you're going to be favorable to me, the new king. So should the Greeks show up, maybe you'll be loyal to me. I'm taking good care of you. I sent you home. I helped you rebuild your temple, etc., etc. Um, and then, of course, if you're writing your paper on the Persian period, You've got Haggai uh, chapters 1 and 2, Zechariah chapter 6, and Ezra chapter 3. We'll talk about uh, this rebuilding of the temple. Okay. Great test question. What's, what's a good political rationale for sending the Judeans back home? Why help somebody build a temple? Why does the U.S. help rebuild mosques in Iraq? Why do you do that? Why do you help people that are under you? Yeah, to gain their favor. And hopefully they'll be loyal to you when the insurgency comes or when some other enemy comes. Okay? Everybody have this? No batteries. Huh. What you need to know is that Judea Judah, Jerusalem specifically, is no longer its own state. It is now a province of the Persian government. And it will have governors. The high priesthood will be restored. Great, we don't care, you worship whoever you want to worship. Right, just pay your tax. But there will be a Persian appointed governor. Again, what do you do with this? if you have this promise to David that says a, a, a son of the king of David will always sit on the throne in Jerusalem. And now you're not even an independent state, right? You're this province under the administration of the Persian Empire. And yet, you don't see any complaints about this during this period. The, this period is, you know, they, I mean, come on, they call the Persian king a messiah. They're very happy about this. So again, when you're trying to rationalize promises, you want to rationalize it, but you don't want to upset the one guy who's actually helping you. So they're kind of they're kind of stuck. So they kind of accept this idea of being a province of the Persian Empire. They issue coins, although they don't have mint marks on them. Um, they issue coins, and can you see this? You see in uh, what we call Paleo Hebrew or Aramaic script, a yod, a hay, and a dalit. Y-H-D, Yahud. 
right? And this place was called Judea, Judea. So it's the same name. They're, they're giving it a little different name, but it's uh, it's Yehud. It's the province of Yehud, the Persian province of Yehud. So that's a, that's another name for Jerusalem. It becomes the province of Yehud under the Persian Empire. In Aramaic, remember I said Ezra. Parts of Ezra are written in Aramaic. The Aramaic is Avar Nahra, right? This it's called literally the land over the river, the land beyond the river. So that's what they called it in Aramaic. But the coins they printed, which we think were local because they actually have the name Yehud on it, YHD, Yod A Dalit. And then nice eagle, which is how you know they're under a form. What do we know you can't do in uh, according to the Ten Commandments in, in, in Judaism? Graven images. What do they have on their coin? Graven image. So probably not minting their own coins. Okay, so this is evidence that Judea, Jerusalem was a Persian province. What's the image on the right? Is that the third of the year? It's a lily. Uh, a flower not really considered graven image. In fact, when we look at some of the coins that the Jews will mint later, uh, we'll see some of, some of the images that they chose to put on there. Okay, now, do we need a temple? Here's the big question, and here's the big fight that a lot of people got into, okay? In their theology, they went from a portable god to a stationary god in a temple. Once the temple's knocked down, you get the idea of this portable god. Except he's not really in an in a, in a idol or in a box, right? He's in a vision and he's portable. He's this heavenly god, right? And he's portable again, at least according to the vision of Ezekiel. But the big question becomes, do we need a new temple? If God's portable again, and God lives in heaven, and we and we don't believe that you know the Jews didn't believe that God lived in a house anymore because houses can be destroyed. Do you re need to rebuild him a house? And the people are split on this. Specifically, the people who were taken off into exile, the nobles who want to come back, they want to rebuild the temple. Why? What? Yeah. Which and how were things? How were things? Who was in charge in the, in the way they were? They were. Part of building a temple is not just to worship, but it's also the central bank. It's also whoever controls the temple controls the politics, because they don't have a king anymore, right? They have a Persian governor. So one of the ways that when you come back, you can say to the people who were, who were still there, who have gone forward and made their own lives, by the way, we're in charge again, is you bring back the temple and you take control of the temple. People now have to come worship at the temple, and you're back in control. So don't just think that this was some religious thing. This was also a play for power. It was a political play. It was a, it was a financial play. By rebuilding the temple, you're also making a claim. We're back, and we're bringing with us the way that we're going to do things. Okay. Um, so... Uh, we talk about second temple literature again. We talk about Haggai one and two, Isaiah sixty six, Ezekiel 40, 40 through forty eight are all visions of rebuilding this temple. And don't worry about this picture. We'll, we'll see a better one a little later. Let me show you an example of this uh, from Haggai. Haggai uh, chapter one opens up. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, etc., 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 and he begins to complain, and he's complaining, you exiles have come back, and you're building yourself houses, but you haven't rebuilt the temple, right? It is time, is it time for you to dwell in your paneled houses while this house is lying in ruins, right? So the question is, hey, you guys are building your own houses, but you're neglecting the temple, meaning what? Haggai's pro-temple. He wants to see the temple rebuilt. So there's a question of whether you need to rebuild the temple. <clears throat> also keep in mind that 
just as it was important to rebuild sacred spaces on top of sacred spaces, it was also important to be symbolic in that, as much as to the extent that it's possible. So in Ezra 3.8, we read, uh, in the second year uh, after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, the second month of Zerubbabel, etc., 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 which should remind you of reading 2 Chronicles 3.2, when Solomon built the first temple. It says he began to build on the second day of the second month of the fourth year of his reign. So they tried to rebuild the temple at the same time of year, the second month, that the first temple was built. You're trying to reenact that same thing. You want to try to bring back that glory, right? The way it was. You'll also note, and maybe this is coincidence, or maybe this is just the way that the story is told, that the destruction of the first temple by the Babylonians was said to take place on the ninth of Av. And by the time when the Romans do it, when the Romans are going to knock it down again in 70 CE, guess what day the history tells us that the second temple was destroyed? The ninth of Av again. Coincidence, or is that the way, or are they intentionally telling the story so that this, this ninth of Av becomes, uh oh, every year a ninth of Av comes around, it's like, what's going to happen, right? So it's not, you know, why are they rebuilding the temple? To try to re-harness that power, glory, for religious purposes, political purposes, financial purposes, any of those. Now, there are some groups, especially those groups that remained behind, weren't exiled, who are going to be opposed to rebuilding that temple. Why? Yeah, they like things the way they are now. All those guys who used to oppress them, who used to be, are gone. Now they're in control, and these guys are going to come back, and they're going to come back and uh, take control again? No. So there were some that didn't want this temple rebuilt. Okay? And there are still others <coughs> that rebuild the temple in different ways. So for instance, we've got this utopian temple in Ezekiel 40 through 48. Ezekiel describes a temple uh, that he wants to see rebuilt. Okay, But you've also got Flavius Josephus, Josephus, uh, a Jewish historian uh, in the Roman period, who talks about the Samaritan temple. Apparently, the Samaritans built a temple um, on Mount Gerizim. So now you've got an alternate or a rival temple. Why do we need that temple in Jerusalem? We'll just build our own temple here on Mount Gerizim. Um, we have an elephantine letter, number 30, that requests uh, permission to build a temple on Elephantine Island in Egypt. We've got, and I'll show you evidence of all these. I'm just going to preview them here. Um, the Leontopolis uh, Temple uh, built by Onias IV uh, in 140, 164 BC. All of a sudden, once that original <coughs> temple is gone, not only do you have people wanting to rebuild that temple in Jerusalem, but you've got other Jews, Jewish groups, wanting to rebuild all kinds of temples. Now, what do we know from Deuteronomy? You're not supposed to do. What do we know from the reforms of Hezekiah and Josiah? They didn't like it. To see what? The Hebrew God worshipped anywhere but Jerusalem. And yet we have all kinds of evidence that Jewish groups were worshipping Yahweh, right, in other temples in other places. Then, of course, you've got the Dead Sea Scrolls that talk about this... Uh, this very uh, apocalyptic temple that's going to be destroyed, this, this massive temple that you couldn't possibly build. You know? uh, and we'll look at all these. So let's let's look at a couple of these. Um, when Josephus described the temple of the Samaritans, and again, a lot of the lot of the fighting. Some of you who've read the Christian New Testament will read about the Jews versus the Samaritans. Okay, the Samaritans had their own temple. And because you're not worshiping at our temple in Jerusalem, you must be worshiping some foreign god. Even though they were claiming to worship the same god. So what we see uh, is this legend. We have no evidence of the temple, or we didn't at the time. Um, but we had this legend that there was a temple on top of Mount Gerizim. And then one day we found a coin, right? Um, and on this coin, which was uh, minted in Neapolis, which is Nablus, right, 
we have a picture of what is Mount Gerizim. And on top of it, we have a temple. And next to it, we have an altar. And then we have a staircase leading up the mountain. So we actually were able to um, do excavations on Mount Gerizim based upon a coin that depicted what the temple, what we think the temple looked like, or at least their idealized or stylized temple. So now you have evidence of a rival temple in Samaria, which we I think we'll mention when we get to Christianity, but you've got Jews or people who are at least adhering to the Hebrew Bible, at least the Torah, uh, worshiping at a different temple other than Jerusalem. Obviously, the Bible, the way that we have the canonical Bible today, doesn't like that. And the Jews in the south, the Jews in Jerusalem, don't like that. In fact, they probably think that's some other religion. Okay. But that's the Temple of Mount Gerizim um, in some, uh, the Samaritan Temple. We also have the Elephantine letters. Uh, number 30 is actually asking um, uh, if it seems good to our Lord, remember the, this temple and reconstruct it, since they do not let us reconstruct it. Basically, the temple was destroyed, and they're asking permission to reconstruct this temple in Egypt. Right? Um, look to your clients and friends here in Egypt. Let a letter be sent from you to them concerning the temple of the god Yahweh. So again, remember we talked about how do you, how can you tell a name? It's called the Theophoric names that are names that have the name Yahweh or some equips of Yah or you know Elijah Eliyahu. Yahu, Jeremiah, Elijah, these names, names in, in, in uh, IAH. Well, apparently you've got Jews down in Egypt who are worshiping what appears to be the same God. They call him Yahweh instead of Yahweh, but it's the same one. So now we've got a temple uh, uh, down in Egypt. And of course, uh, this, and this is always dear to my heart because I did my dissertation on the Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls. But you've got a discovery beginning in 1947, uh, 48, 49, um, at a place called Qumran up along the shore of the Dead Sea. We found some scrolls, and in some of these scrolls, they describe a new temple. There's a pressure on 2 Samuel 7. Surprise, right? Even these guys, hundreds of years later, are still trying to reinterpret the promise to David as, as pointing to them specifically, right, and explaining the temple. So it talks about all, and what, what's a pesher, by the way? A pesher is a commentary where the commentary is in the same line as the text. So today a commentary, if you buy a commentary on a, a biblical book, is a separate book. And they'll have you know, a piece of verse, and then they'll say, okay, here's what this verse means. Or here's what so-and-so says it means. These guys do the same thing. They would actually make commentaries on biblical books. So, for instance, it'll say, uh, Strangers shall not again defile it, as they formerly defiled the temple of Israel through their sins. Okay? So they're given a reason for it. It was destroyed because they sinned. Right? To that end, he has commanded that they build him a temple of Adam and that in it they sacrificed him proper sacrifices. So the Dead Sea Scrolls actually talk about uh, this place is the house that they shall build for him in the last days. This apocalyptic temple that's going to be rebuilt. Or how about this one? The Temple Scroll, 11 QT. Not QT like QT, but not QT. 11 Qumran Temple Scroll. And you get in this document, these are the regulations that you must follow all of your festivals. Each one's burnt offering, drink offerings, peace offerings, in the temple upon which I shall cause my name to dwell. So here again we get the name theology. Now again, this was written in maybe the first century, second century BC, maybe the first century CE. It's late. It's much later than all the stuff we've been reading. But all of a sudden now we've got name theology and references to the rebuilding of the temple. Keep in mind, the temple <coughs> in Jerusalem's already been rebuilt. So whoever's writing this scroll, the temple scroll, doesn't really accept the Jerusalem temple. They don't like the Jerusalem temple. These guys are talking about, no, a real temple that I'm going to cause my name to dwell. I shall sanctify my temple with my glory. I will cause my glory to dwell upon it in the, until the day of creation, when I myself will create my temple. 
Okay, so it's it's this vision. It's supposedly God talking and saying, um, "I'm going to rebuild a real temple." So not only do you get a group of Jews that are trying to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, but you get a lot of other groups who are talking about rebuilding their own temple. So after the destruction of the temple in 586, Judaism explodes with lots of different movements and ideas. It's no longer necessary, or at least it wasn't practiced, to worship God only in Jerusalem. They were building temples all over the place. Now the Bible doesn't like that. The way that we have the canonical Bible says only in Jerusalem. And anybody else is not worshiping me properly or breaking the law. Or but that doesn't stop people who are calling themselves Jews and worshiping Yahweh to be building temples elsewhere. What do we know about the actual size of Jerusalem? Well, here we are pre-exile, 600 BCE. And remember we talked about it expanded from the city of David over to the western hill and different spots to the north and to the west. And then, uh, during, at 400 BCE, we're looking at about 1,500 people. Basically, they just went back to the way it was. So Jerusalem, it's getting a do-over. They're starting over. And then, of course, by the middle of the Hasm or by the beginning of the Hasmonean period, which you don't know about the Hasmoneans yet, but they're coming, um, we've got 35,000 people in there. So you do have archaeological evidence, at least in the form of population, uh, that shows that these guys were basically pushed and Jerusalem became a nothing place. And then they came back to rebuild it, and that's what you've got again. So Jerusalem's going to try to become the center of the world yet again. Um, as I just showed uh, uh, on the chart, Jerusalem was an impoverished, impoverished place. Okay. It's very small. It's depopulated. They, there are texts and stories about the rebuilding of the second temple, uh, but it pales uh, to the form of glory, as Ezra 3 says this. Um, and again, Herod the Great systematically disassembled the second temple and remade it. It took about, oh gosh, it probably took about, to do the complex and the temple, you're looking 20 BC to 60 CE, so what's that, 80 years to build this whole, what we now know today is the Temple Mount and the redo the temple. Um, so he even didn't like it. So he actually had it, it's kind of like when they redo the humanities building. They take everybody out of it, they gut it out, they redo all the facing, and then you can go back there in a few years. That, that's going to happen to the temple later. Herod the Great is going to be responsible for that. But it's just not, as, not a big of a deal. Um, there was heavy taxation by the Persian Empire. We get this from Nehemiah 5. Again, Jude, it wasn't its own country. Judea wasn't. It was a province, Yahud, under the Persian Empire. And we begin to see conflicts with the Samaritans. We have this parable of the Good Samaritan in the New Testament that kind of talks about, kind of implies that Jews hate Samaritans, even though they're all kind of Jews but one's worshiping in the north on Mount Gerizim and one's worshiping at Jerusalem. We begin to see these, uh, these problems growing out of this coming back. And here you can see Mount Gerizim and Nablus, Chen, hello. Um, Any questions? Um, as I said earlier, some people didn't want this temple rebuilt. So in Nehemiah 4, we actually get this almost comical description, but it's a, it's a pretty fun description. It's talking about while they're building, there are people protesting. You've ever seen construction where they're using non-labor or non-union workers, or they're using workers from the wrong union, and there's union people out there protesting. You've seen this, people are doing construction, and there's people, you know, unfair labor. Well, these guys are like that, except they have swords. Okay? And they don't want the temple rebuilt. They like the way things are. They don't want these guys who were exiled coming back. And so they're actually attacking them, throwing things at them while they were trying to rebuild the temple. So we get, we get the text uh, from Nehemiah. Um, Those who were building the, the temple wall, the burden carriers, carried their loads in such a way that they labored on the work with one hand 
and the other hand held a weapon. So they're trying to build the temple, but they're all they're strapped, they're all packing, right, while they're building. Um, on each of the each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. So I, I don't I'm trying to think of an analogy of this, and one of the analogies is what? Reconstruction where in the world today? <coughs> Do you see descriptions of this? In Iraq, a lot of the descriptions we have coming out of Iraq today are these guys who are trying to rebuild the infrastructure, right? They're American, right? Or they're contractors. So a lot of times the insurgents will try to target them. So every time there's a construction project going on, you've got armed guards standing around trying to keep people uh, from stopping them from rebuilding whatever they're working on. And that's what you've got here. Look down at the bottom. They, they took the laborers, and at night they doubled as security guards, right? As a guard for us by night uh, and my la uh, labor by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me ever took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon in his right hand. It's like an old western, right? You sleep them with your gun. Right? But that's what's going on. There was, there was very serious opposition to rebuilding this temple. Um, then there's a second return. There's a second wave of returnees. The main characters are, of course, and this is in the mid-5th century BC. Ezra and Nehemiah. You get the description of not only rebuilding the temple, but rebuilding the walls. Right? In uh, Nehemiah 2 and 3. And we begin to see, again, these problems with the Amharits in Hebrew. The, the people of the land. That's what they're called. And later on in Jewish tradition, in the, in the mission of the Talmud, the Amharits becomes kind of a, a slang for an idiot, kind of redneck, country bumpkin type thing. They were the un, remember, they were the uneducated people that stayed behind. The nobles and all the educated folks were exiled. And of course, the Bible's written by, ends up being written by the people who came back. So they look at the people who stayed behind as Samaritans or uh, the Amharits. Um, so I just said all that. All right. A couple more. Any questions so far? Okay. Um, we don't need to read it all, but just know in Nehemiah, it says Nehemiah 2, 11 through 17, we have uh, Nehemiah's midnight ride, and it describes him going in and looking around and saying, well, we need to rebuild these walls. Now remember, Nebuchadnezzar had wiped out the walls around Jerusalem to prevent this very thing. If you let somebody rebuild their walls, then they might rebel. So Nehemiah is actually going to go back and help rebuild the walls, which not only the Persians apparently let them do, but the locals didn't want them to do. Because once Jerusalem rebuilds its walls, then it rebuilds a temple, now it can defend the temple, and now it's going to become a center for politics and for finance. And, and the people who are local don't want that. They want to remain in control. And so we're going to see, and it's another class, but you see a fight between kind of the local conservative folks and this liberal elite that comes back from Babylon. Just it, some things never change. Okay? And they fight back and forth. Uh, let's end with this. Some people have heard of the lost tribes of Israel. Okay. Um, where does this come from? Um, we're talking about the division of the, David, the Davidic kingdom back in 931 BCE. Right? David's king, Solomon's king, and then after Solomon dies, Rehoboam uh, becomes king. People don't like that. Jeroboam, they split ten tribes from the north, two from the south. The ten tribes, those, those people that lived in what kingdom we know as Samaria, or the area to the north, were destroyed in 721 BCE when the Assyrians wiped out Samaria and export, uh, deported all the folks or killed them. Um, it's a, it's a non-canonical book. It's a book of Tobit that we actually get this reference to the lost tribes of Israel. And of course, since it's a book that didn't make it into the Bible, but it is a book that we know about, it is, again, ripe for conspiracy theories and, and all kinds of things. So people have fun with this. So you've got all kinds of people claiming to be the lost tribes of Israel. And you, if you watch enough Discovery Channel or History Channel, 
you'll see these shows on, you know, who really are the lost tribes of Israel? And do they have the Ark of the Covenant? I mean, conspiracy theories begin to conflate upon one another, right? And you've got everybody, basically everybody, claiming to be the lost tribes of Israel. We don't know. Um, and then you've got, um, uh, last thing I want to point out is, there was opposition, just keep this in mind, because it will come into play again, between the people who remained uh, and Samaritans. Why am I pointing out all of these different temples? Why am I pointing out all of these different Jewish groups? Because this is a period where Judaism undergoes all kinds of transformation. And I'm not just talking about the, the assimilation into the religion of concepts of paradise, heaven, and hell, or Hades. You don't have that in Judaism until you get down to the Persian and Hellenistic period. And by the time Jesus shows up, he's talking about heaven and hell, and a lot of the Jews are like, what? Heaven? That's not Judaism. We don't have that. Well, yeah, we do. Let me point you to some literature. And then they start quoting these books, and they're like, those which ended up not being in the Hebrew Bible. Right? So what you're going to get in the Persian period, and then later we're going to see more of this in the Hellenistic period, are all of these different foreign religious ideas thrown into what came out as Judaism. And then you get this diverse religion, and you've got... But what it does is it sets the stage for all these different movements, or sects, SEC. When I talk about Jewish sects, it's S-E-C-T-S, sects, like sectarian movements within Judaism, okay? Um, so don't stop smiling. Um, so when we talk about Jewish sects, it's different Jewish sectarian groups. Where do they all come from? By the time you get to the New Testament, you've got Pharisees and Sadducees and Samaritans and Herodians and Zealots and Essenes. Where did that come from? Well, it came out of this period. When they came back, Judaism fundamentally changed. But we know very little about it. We have the biblical text. We have some coins. So the, like I said, those of you who really want to do a, a good groundbreaking research uh, in this area, study the Persian period and its interaction with Judaism. Before we go, any questions about the exam? About your papers? You guys have papers to get back? No? Some of you do? Okay. Um, your paper grades will be inputted on the course website. You can look at them there. Uh, if you have any questions about the exam, come see me uh, in my office. Thanks.